Do you remember reading The Princess Diaries? I remember going to Borders. We went there every Friday with my dad. And, you know, the pink hardcover with the crown on the front. Elise Bryant is the author of Happily Ever Afters and the forthcoming One True Loves. She was in fifth or sixth grade when the book came out in 2000. I just, I have such a clear memory of picking up that book and being drawn to that cover. That iconic pink cover with the gold foil crown. I have the book here too. And I remember the first line where, where is, let me find it. Sometimes it seems like all I ever do is lie. The line is, sometimes it seems like all I ever do is lie. My mom thinks I'm repressing my feelings about this. I say to her, no, mom, I'm not. I think it's really neat. As long as you're happy, I'm happy. As the book opens, Mia is lying to her mom about how happy she is that her mother is dating her math teacher. The inspiration for this subplot came from the author Meg Cabot's own life. Just started writing kind of my personal feelings about my mom dating my teacher. Meg Cabot, author of The Princess Diaries. Meg took some of those personal feelings about her mom's love life and turned them into a novel draft. And it was maybe a year or maybe a couple years after my dad had passed away. And I was really, you know, happy for my mom. But I was really upset because it was just so gross. When Meg shared the book with friends, they provided some useful feedback. They were like, this is funny, but why is this woman who's 30 years old so upset about her mom dating her former teacher? Maybe you should make the character younger. And I thought, oh, yeah, that actually makes sense. So I just made her younger. And that is how Mia was formed. But switching from an adult novel to a YA novel requires some research and a little more plot. So Meg brought a friend's daughter, a girl who loved to read, to Books of Wonder in New York City and promised to buy her whatever she wanted just to get a sense of her taste. She started piling all these books into my arms and I started realizing that they were all diary books. So she loved the Dear America books and this really great book called Catherine, called Birdie by Karen Cushman. It takes place in medieval times. It's really good. And then Absolutely Normal Chaos by Sharon Creech was one of them. And they were all in diary format. So I started thinking, oh my God, I should be writing this book in diary format. I had kept a diary my whole life. So I thought, oh God, of course, this is great. I love reading other people's diary. I love epistolary novels. I loved... Daddy Longlegs, and this great book called Up the Down Staircase, which was totally told in like journal entries and memos from classrooms. And coincidentally, Meg had all of her childhood diaries with her in New York and had them to draw on. So I could just copy stuff right out of the, like all my notes because I was really, I was very ADD as a kid. I mean, I still am. But I had, you know, notes in my diary from like algebra. <laughs> this is why I got such bad grades because <laughs> I wasn't clearly paying attention. So I thought oh, I could just transfer this right into the book and it'll be really funny. So everything in those books is taken right from my actual notebooks from high school. People write reviews about, like, Mia clearly has some kind of math dyslexia. And I'm like, oh my God, that's literally taken from my notebook. These decisions helped build Mia's very lived-in first-person voice, the one that so excited a young Elise. Mia gets to be unfiltered in her diary, 
writing without a sense of an audience and with an absence of self-awareness. The diary format is also a source of the book's humor, says Meg, who believes levity is crucial for storytelling. I don't think Mia is necessarily always being funny on purpose, but she's she is pretty funny, especially when you're writing in a diary. You really are just telling your deepest thoughts. They end up on the page being very funny. Were Meg's own diaries similarly funny? Oh, it was so embarrassing. I ended up shredding a lot, a lot, because I started thinking, what if somebody finds these after I'm dead? Everything is a huge disaster. Like you have a pimple and that is a huge disaster. And I actually wrote on my diary the same day, my grandma died and they're both equally, (laughs) which is so horrible. So I shredded so much stuff and then everything else I put in the book and now they're gone. Like there are no more diaries (laughs) Mia's voice in diary form adds a layer of intimacy and vulnerability to the story. It was the first time I read a book that sounded like my own voice. And I was just like, you can write like this? (laughs) Like books can be published that are like this? Meg Pabot was the first author I ever met in person. (laughs) She was my idol growing up. I wanted to write books like her. She made me realize that the kind of stories that I wanted to tell were okay. (laughs) That my voice as it is was okay. I didn't have to try and sound like anyone else. I could just sound like myself. The Princess Diaries was a permission book for Elise, encouraging her to write the kinds of stories that were important to her But before we dig into the themes of The Princess Diaries, here's Meg with a quick summary. So Mia is finding out that she's not who she thought she was, which I I think is kind of an allegory for (laughs) adolescence, you know. And then for Mia, it's exacerbated by the fact she really doesn't know who she is. She thought she was just this ordinary adolescent going to high school. And then it turns out she's also a royal princess. And suddenly all these boys are interested in her. Mia's a romantic, swooning about boys in her diary and reading romance novels with her friend Tina Hawk and Baba. In the course of this book, she dips her toe into the world of dating, going with a boy to the cultural diversity dance and experiencing her first kiss. This emotional terrain, rough for most teenagers, is further complicated for Mia by her royal status. Mia suddenly has to figure out, like, who are her real friends? Are they the people who want to be friends with her now that she's a princess, or are they the people who have always been friends with her? Along the way, Mia discovers her values by having them tested and lands in a version of herself that is more honest and mature than the repressed Mia of the opening line. And it's the diary format that gives readers a chance to see behind the curtain and to imagine themselves in the story. It's honestly one of my, like, first memories of feeling really seen in a character because just like Mia, I was painfully uncool (laughs) when I was younger. I was awkward and gawky. I was the the tallest kid. I was flat-chested with my huge feet and my frizzy curls I didn't know what to do with. And so reading her voice and reading how she like navigated through her high school, it felt so familiar to me. And also she's like, you know, she's super snarky and judgy and awkward. And it was like reading a book through my own perspective. Even though she's a white character and obviously I'm not white, I was very familiar already at that age of superimposing myself on white characters in books. And so, yeah, I was able to see myself in her. In Elisa's book, Happily Ever Afters, her protagonist Tessa writes romance novels. 
Tessa's writing, like Mia's in Princess Diaries, also becomes a refuge for her. I think Tessa is a lot like Mia in Princess Diaries, where she keeps a lot of her feelings inside. Like Mia puts it all in her journal. Tessa puts a lot of it in her stories. And as a reader, we of course, we feel their big feelings, but they're not really showing them to people on the outside. And in the same way that Mia's diaries are pulled from Meg's life, Tessa's motivations are not unfamiliar to Elise. I loved rom-coms from a very early age, but it was almost impossible at that point in the late 90s, early 2000s to find those books with, with girls that look like me. And so I started, just like Tessa does in Happily Ever Afters, I started writing those stories myself. I would write the kind of voicey, funny, happy, joyful love stories that I love to read, but then I would write them with a girl that was Black like I am. Both books are romps through friendship and towards self-actualization for their heroines. And both center on romance. Here's Elise Bryant again. I think a similarity between Tessa and Mia is they both are chasing, you know, this romance they think they're supposed to have. The boy that they think they're supposed to be with that fits so nicely or easily in a love story. With Mia, it's with Josh. And then with Tessa, it's Nico. And they're both chasing these boys that are so clearly wrong for them and so clearly don't have their best interests in mind. But they have this like fantasy of what a love story is, what a happily ever after is supposed to be. What I love about Princess Diaries and what I think I tried to do in Happily Ever Afters also, showing the self-love, you know, and both girls trying to figure themselves out and learning how to love themselves exactly as they are. And through that, they are able to find the love story that they need. Throughout the Princess Diaries, Mia is hung up on this popular boy named Josh Richter. After she's outed as a princess, Mia's romantic dreams seem to come true when Josh dumps his mean girlfriend Lana Weinberger and asks Mia to the cultural diversity dance instead. Spoiler alert, things go bad at the dance and Mia, repressed, deflecting Mia, has to confront Josh and actually tells him off. She ends up having a great time with Michael Moskowitz, the older brother of Mia's best friend, Lily. He's the interesting and kind potential love interest that the reader roots for. While both The Princess Diaries and Happily Ever Afters are love stories, both Meg and Elise expressed some self-doubt early on about their love for this genre. Yeah, so I read like Princess Diaries. I read that when I was like late elementary school and in middle school, I read through that series. But once I hit high school, I kind of absorbed this message that these kind of stories are not important. This isn't real literature. And it took me so long to get over that ridiculous message (laughs) to realize that's not the case at all. Because those were the kind of stories I wrote, I kind of gave up on all of it. I didn't write for like 15 years. Meg, whose work inspired Elise to write, felt similar pressures, but received support and encouragement from the strong feminist role models that helped to inform Mia's story. I grew up in a college town in Bloomington, Indiana, and so I was surrounded by a lot of really great feminist professors. Susan Gubar, who co-wrote The Mad Woman in the Attic, the great book about female authors and looking at feminist literature through time, I babysat for her, for her kids. And so I was around her and just all these amazing 
female academics. And it was kind of intimidating in a way because what I love to read were romance novels and I wasn't sure how they would feel about that. But what was so great was that when I finally told, for instance, my best friend's mother taught English literature, she was like, oh, did you know that Louisa May Alcott, in addition to having written Little Women, also wrote these incredible romantic thrillers? And she gave me a collection of Louisa May Alcott's early writing. And I was like, this is fantastic. And, she, and, and so I read those. An abundance of research suggests that letting young people choose their own books, like Elise's father did every Friday, or like Meg did with her friend's daughter, is key to encouraging a love of reading. In that same vein, Meg credits librarians who didn't meddle. Nobody ever judged what I checked out, and I checked out a lot of smut. <laughs> what people would call smut, but I didn't consider it that way. I considered it books about empowered ladies who went out there to go after what they wanted, which was finding their own dream and what they wanted to do in life, and then also um, some good sex. Discussions of love, especially in YA and for teenagers, inevitably include discussions of sex, to which Meg also brings a feminist lens. Because my mom had worked at Planned Parenthood and I'd worked there for a little while, I really wanted to put in, you know, important sexual content so that if we did have the characters exploring that, we would mention birth control just because I felt like that's something that I would want to read about at that age because I think it should just be discussed in a normal way. And there was a lot of pushback from parents because it mentioned Mia's mom's diaphragm. I mean, Mia talks about it constantly. She's very paranoid <laughs> for somebody who doesn't have sex until way, way in the future of like the very last book. She's very paranoid <laughs> about getting pregnant and French kissing and stuff. But it was, that was something that I talked about constantly in my own diaries in high school and, and my friends did too. And we were very intrigued by it and obsessed with it for kids who were never even close to actually having sex. And the book's climax contains a really powerful moment. Spoiler alert. When Mia finally finds her voice and can speak her truth to Josh. It's about Mia's first kiss, which isn't consensual. And Mia is able to confront Josh about it in the seconds after it happened and assert that she didn't like it. As a tipped hat to the Me Too movement and the way that it has hopefully salted the earth forever of our patients for sexual harassment, when The Princess Diaries was re-released in 2020, Meg and her editor decided to remove a mention of a creepy teacher. There was actually a teacher, I think, in the book who would give girls massages. Like all of the girls in the book were like, oh, he does it to see if we're wearing a bra. We took that out because now if that took place, he would have been fired. Back in those days, that I believe that that was the kind of thing that girls would talk about and they'd tell their parents and it would have been dismissed because that was how it was when I was growing up and the girls at NYU would talk about teachers like that. And there was not the Me Too movement. It, it was a whisper campaign. What I think is so amazing about this new generation and the millennials is that they just were like, no, that's not acceptable. And they, they're putting a stop to that kind of stuff. And I love that. The Princess Diaries confronts real issues teenage girls face and flips traditional princess tropes, a special, beautiful girl who lives a benign life of ease, upside down. Mia is awkward, neurotic, and resents being a princess. Meg's inspiration for the royal storyline was literally ripped from the headlines. Right before I started writing this book was when Princess Diana died. And that was a huge, I mean, just huge shock to me. I 
stayed up all night to watch her wedding and, you know, followed everything that was going on with her with a lot of interest. And then when she died so violently and tragically, it was just such a shock to me. Meg had collected a box of news clippings featuring the Princess of Wales, who was very much in her mind when she wrote Mia into this role of unwitting princess. And what Mia has to work through is the fact that being a princess, as we now know, because of multiple stories of actual real-life women who become princesses, it's hard and it's not fun necessarily. There are some good parts, but there's also a lot of downsides. And Mia really is having a hard time seeing any of the upsides at all. It's her trying to navigate what are the good sides. And she has a lot of great female role models who've done this, which is mainly her grandmother, who's like, look, you you do have a lot of power now. And her best friend, Lily, is also pointing this out to her. Look, there's a lot you can do that's good for the world now. And Mia has to start trying to realize that. In The Princess Diaries, Meg reminded readers that being a princess is an actual job with responsibilities and with gravity and that it's only valuable if the person in the role is willing to make the world better for others. The Princess Diaries centers Mia, who is white, and features Lily and Michael, who are Jewish. Her other close friend, Tina Hockenbaba, is Saudi and British. And the climax takes place at the Cultural Diversity Dance, which has tables set up representing the cultures of all the students at Mia's high school. The realism of the book brings in some sense that diversity exists in the Manhattan prep school that Mia attends. Elise's work, on the other hand, centers Tessa, a Black protagonist, and surrounds her with a broadly diverse cast of friends and classmates. Elise Bryant. We live in an incredibly diverse community, and I so rarely saw that in books growing up. (laughs) You had to really search for books that had diverse casts of characters, and so I wanted Happily Ever Afters to feel real, and part of making it feel real was having it reflect the world that I'm living in. Elise takes care to represent the characters that are not Black, like Caroline, Tessa's Filipina-American best friend, with dignity and accuracy. There's no point in including a diverse cast of characters if they're not done respectfully. And so I really wanted to make sure that, like, if I'm going to include a Filipino character like Caroline, that Filipino readers would read the book and say, like, I recognize that. That feels real. I think it's so important for kids to see themselves in all types of narratives, like being the hero, being prince, a princess, fighting bad guys, fighting monsters, solving mysteries, and, you know, falling in love. It helps kids to dream even bigger dreams when they see that reflected in stories. Elise says that the publishing industry can focus too narrowly on stories of Black trauma. Of course, that's so important for kids to read about because it's real and it's authentic and we need to see that also. But it also needs to be balanced by our joy, by us falling in love and going on adventures. Like all of that needs to be shown too because that is also part of the Black experience and it needs to be given just as much energy and space in this industry. And Elise's books do just that. At the top of the show, Elise said that she internalized an embarrassment about romance stories that stopped her from writing totally. What brought her back to the subject? It was when I was a teacher. I taught in South LA for over eight years. And in that time, so many of my students were asking me for love stories. They wanted funny stories, joyful stories. 
my students asked me for those kind of stories and it made me realize how important they were, you know, to see a black kid, a brown kid, having the space to experience joy, having the space to make mistakes and stumble. Like we see Mia stumble throughout this whole book, you know? I really wanted to write a character like that, but who was black. Love stories, Meg agrees, should have a place in young people's libraries. I also mentor high school kids here in Key West, and there's so much anxiety and and depression and worry about the future. And what I really wanted to put out there was just something to make people feel a little bit better about what was going on in the world and just to have something to take their minds off their troubles. Because that was really important to me because I had a lot of anxiety when I was growing up. But I think the anxiety now is so much worse and there's so much more really serious issues to be worried about. But what I say to kids that I mentor is that just take a deep breath and take time to have fun and just read a book that takes you out of this world because you need to let yourself relax and just take it some time out and not worry so much. There is a lot to worry about, but we're going to be okay. We really are. You have your friends and you have me and I am here to tell you, you're going to make it. And for those who loved Happily Ever Afters and want something else to get lost in, Elise's second book is coming out in 2022. One True Loves is a companion novel to um, my debut novel, Happily Ever Afters. And it follows Lenore Bennett, who is one of Tessa's good friends in the first book. And it the summer after their graduation, Lenore has always been, you know, a force. She's always known what she's wanted. Now that she's graduating, she's realizing that she might not be so sure about what her path is. And so she goes on a Mediterranean cruise with her parents. And while she's trying to figure out her life on this cruise, she also meets a boy named Alex. And she, of course, falls in love. (laughs) I asked Elise what else she's read recently that scratched that itch of both providing excellent representation while also being transportive for young readers. The first book I think of immediately is Amari and the Night Brothers. I just, that book, I will talk about it forever. It's just everything. (laughs) I read that and just, I flew through it and I was just like, this is everything I wanted as a kid. This is this like fantasy world where I could be at the center of, that's like everything I searched for as a kid. So I love that book. It's my daughter's favorite book. And then also the upcoming book, Blackout, I was able to read an early version of that book and I I smiled so big, like my cheeks hurt for like the rest of the day and I cried and it was just like, I cried just because I was so happy that like a book like that exists to see all of these amazing Black women authors, all of these such diverse stories of Black joy. It was just, I... I never could have imagined a book like that when I was a teenager, but I'm so happy that teenagers today get that book. Amari and the Night Brothers by B.B. Alston tells the story of Amari Peters, a girl who discovers that she has supernatural powers and needs to use them to save her missing brother, Quentin. It was published by HarperCollins in January of this year. Blackout is six short love stories that take place during a New York City power outage, Stories are written by Danielle Clayton, Tiffany D. Jackson, Nick Stone, Angie Thomas, Ashley Woodfolk, and Nicola Yoon. And the book is on sale June 2021. 
And in 2020, HarperCollins reissued the first three books of the Princess Diaries series so that new readers can follow Mia on her journey to find love and her voice, and perhaps Mia can inspire a whole new generation of writers. We hope that some of the books discussed here today find their way into the hands of readers longing for escape this summer. Readers who want to get lost and then found in a love story. Tell us what you think on Twitter, at ReadingPod. That's R-E-A-D-I-N-G-P-O-D. Or you can leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Your review could end up in our next newsletter, along with quotes, trivia, and updates about new episodes, which you can sign up for by visiting rememberreading.com. This episode of Remember Reading is produced by my colleagues at HarperCollins, Nellie Kurtzman, Colleen O'Connell, Vishali Nayak, Lauren Levite, Shannon Cox, and Katie Dutton. And special thanks to Podfly for their production support. I'm Nicole Wills. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.